Hi there. Today's show is brought to you by Hoopsters. If you want to connect with your kids or your friends, put your phone down and play Hoopsters, the greatest basketball-themed board game ever made. A game of Hoopsters is quick-paced and packed with all the thrills of basketball and the strategy of backgammon. Head to hoopsters.store to learn more. Good times. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the final episode of Season 2 of Pete Brown Says. Just as I did at the end of Season 1, this final episode has a very short bonus story, one I'm super excited to share with you. And if you're so interested, you can stick around, and after the story, I'll share with you some of the things I'm learning as I continue to produce this and other podcasts. A couple of insights and lessons learned from Season 2. Before we get to it, I want to tell you there is a plan for a third season of Pete Brown Says, but it's probably a year away. Not much of the writing for that season has been done, and I think it's going to take really a full year for me to write everything, edit it down, and get it how I want it. So just as there was a year gap between season one and season two, I anticipate a year gap until season three comes out. But also, in the meantime, I am launching a whole new podcast and documentary film project in November of this year. We haven't announced it yet, so really this is the first time anybody's hearing about it. And what I'll do is, we're going to be releasing a trailer in the second or third week of October, and then the initial episodes will start launching in November. I will put that trailer on the Pete Brown Says feed, as well as the first episode or two, so you can check it out that way, and then subscribe to it once it starts rolling. About all I can say right now is that the project is related to the 2020 election, particularly in my home state of Ohio. So stay tuned for that. I think you're going to like it. And finally, before we get to today's story, if you're in or around Columbus, Ohio on Thursday, October 10th, I'll be telling a story at the Nest Theater on Broad Street. The Nest is Columbus's only dedicated improv theater, and if you listen to Season 2, I do share a couple of stories of taking improv lessons there. They do an event called Word Live Literature, which is a live storytelling event. It's at 7 p.m. Thursday, October 10th. The theme is Ghost Stories, and I'm one of the storytellers this Thursday. I am told that this event often sells out. You can get tickets at nesttheater.com. All right, let's get to today's story. Those of you who know me and know my wife, Jody know that calling her my better half has never been a more appropriate use of that phrase. She's been on this show a number of times to share stories and help set context. We met in, we met in graduate school when we were both getting masters in English. She's a fantastic writer. And I want to say eight or nine years ago, she spent one summer writing really funny essays about her experiences and adventures raising our kids and being married to me. And she posted them on a blog called The Jesus Gerbil, which was subtitled Life is Funny. I thought they were hilarious. Anybody who read them at the time thought they were hilarious. They're still out there on the internet, although she hasn't written any in some time. But I asked her if she would, for the final episode of Pete Brown Says, read one of her essays. And she agreed. And so the one I picked, the one I asked her to read, is called The Finger. And I picked it because episode one of this season was called Flipping the Bird, and it was about my experiences with that hand gesture. And I remember this really funny essay she had written called The Finger and asked her to perform it. So let's get to it. Here's my wife, Jody Brown, reading an essay called The Finger. And if you're interested in learning more about how I produce the podcast, stick around afterwards for some insights on that. Okay, here's Jody. Once there was a time when I was a hero. 
Anger by Jody Brown. My son was in second grade when his teacher approached me in the hallway of the school. It was a cold winter day and she seemed tentative. She said, During class today, your son told me someone on the bus was saying the F word in sign language. She paused, looking quizzical. She was trying to piece together what my shy son meant and hoping I'd help. He meant, of course, someone was giving him the finger. What seemed obvious to me was perplexing her, so I explained. Somebody flipped them off. She looked both relieved and annoyed. Relieved there wasn't some new shit she'd have to deal with, but annoyed because she'd wasted precious time to find out kids were just doing what they'd always done on the bus. Anywho, I didn't tell this particular teacher, who was a known yeller, that when I asked my son about her yelling, concerned that my shy son would be affected adversely by her, he said, No, she doesn't yell. She just encourages me really loudly from across the room. It may be my son is somewhat understated as an individual. Before this conversation with his teacher, I had heard my son refer to the finger as, quote, the F word in sign language, end quote, once or twice. I figured he'd gotten the gist of the gesture, and that was good enough. After the conversation with his teacher, I followed up with him. I explained that teachers usually understand a literal explanation better than, say, an old English kenning, i.e., it's better for everyone involved to just say ocean if you mean ocean, rather than railroad, for example, and that he should probably just call it the finger when talking to teachers about the finger in the future. I wanted to be clear about the finger because my parents didn't level with me about it when I was a kid. When I was in first or second grade, I asked my parents what it meant. They were tucking me in one night and I showed them the hand gesture. It means stinky on you, said my mother. Good night. And that was it. No further explanation, no update. In our family, stinky meant poop. So someone wishing poop on me was about the worst thing I could imagine when I was in first grade. Horrible. I held on to this misinformation until I was almost 18. Walking home from high school at the end of my senior year, some kid flipped me off and screamed, Fuck you! as he went by on the school bus. His whole torso and face were plastered sideways against the window, and his hand, waving the finger wildly at the top of the window, was literally framed. That's when it clicked. I realized the finger didn't mean stinky on me at all. Imagine all the times you've seen someone display the finger. Now imagine that all those times, every single time you thought it meant, I would like to put poop on you. It colors your world a few shades off, doesn't it? The only person who ever said anything else to me about the finger when I was a kid was my great Uncle Henry, and even that was off. My Uncle Henry, my grandmother's brother, was a pretty tough old guy. He was a retired truck driver and a big man. He smoked cools, had six teeth, some of which he'd removed by himself with pliers, and wore a cap like the dude in the children's book Caps for Sale, where he stacks all those caps up on his head and the monkeys get all involved and there's a big problem. 
but he only wore one cap and he didn't get into it with monkeys. He and my grandmother once had a fist fight over whether or not he had changed his underwear. They had this argument, or fist fight, when they were adults. The underwear fight was before my time, but he evidently had enough fight experience that he felt free to give advice. He said if I punch someone in the eye, I should, quote, give them the finger, end quote. As he said this, he showed me how to put my thumb between my index finger and my middle finger so I could, quote, gouge out their eye, end quote. I don't know if this works or what. I don't know what the likelihood is of breaking my own thumb, but the advice sounded screwy even when I was a kid. The kids in his neighborhood were afraid of him, though. They said he was known to chase children around with a big knife, which, all things considered, might be better than plucking their eyes out with his thumb. I don't know if he really chased kids around, but if he did, he probably just wanted to protect all the silver dollars he had hidden in his basement in buckets. You know how your family does. And you know why. Don't act like you don't have relatives who didn't live through the Depression. The nice thing about this relationship with my uncle, beside the punching tips, was that it taught me how to buy cigarettes. Every Christmas season, I got to go to Ben Franklin and buy a carton of cools. And when I brought them out to the idling car, my mom would laugh and say, got the coffin nails? Then she would peel off in our giant wood-paneled Ford LTD station wagon, also called oddly a country squire, laden with a carton of smokes and the four of us kids rolling around unfettered in the back seat like melons. Today kids have to be seat belted in so we can justify having TVs in our cars. Kids come with all sorts of costly equipment that you are not allowed to forego, like car seats and boosters, which is what my daughter was in when she gave a motorcycle gang the finger. My husband and kids were on their way to pick me up. I'd cycled 50 miles in a fundraiser for cancer, and they were on their way to meet me at the finish line. While on the highway, the kids spotted a group of big men in black leather on choppers approaching from behind. My eight-year-old daughter in blonde pigtail screamed, Dad, it's a motorcycle gang. My 10-year-old son worried, said, Dad, how do we know if they're good guys or bad guys? And my husband, half-cocked, said, well, we'll just give them the finger to find out. Ha ha. In retrospect, my husband admits this was not the best response. Well, it is certainly a good litmus test for a number of situations, say, one in which you hope to evaluate the likelihood that you will get your ass kicked. It is probably not the one you want to use for arriving on time to pick your wife up from her good deed. After give them the finger floated out of my husband's mouth, the car was quiet for a few beats until my son started screaming. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, she's giving them the finger, oh my God. My husband craned around to see what he could see, which wasn't much since he was driving and my daughter was directly behind him. My husband yelled, what's going on back there? And my son said, she's giving the gang the finger. And my daughter said, indignantly, it's the fake finger. For those of you unfamiliar with the fake finger, it goes like this. Hold one hand with the pinky side parallel to the ground, fingers together, palm facing you. Make a fist with your opposite hand, fingers and thumb facing you. Then point your index finger at the ceiling. Then place your fist hand behind your open hand with the index finger poking up from behind. It's like you've made a little privacy fence for your index finger that allows it to be misconstrued as your swear finger. Voila! fake finger. 
We kind of liked that she came up with this, but we had to put the kibosh on it after we started getting it a little too often and a little too emphatically. Parents don't like getting the finger real or fake or even unbeknownst, but I do suspect the motorcycle gang thought it was kind of cute. I grew up with a kid who got a picture of himself giving double fingers sent out to all his parents' friends via their Christmas card. This kid's name was, no joke, Chucky Man. Every year his parents made him pose for a Christmas card, so we had years of Chucky Man in his Christmas sweaters and sparkly blue eyes, then sparkly blue eyes and glasses, and then sweaters, blue eyes, glasses, and years of forced smiles. We had the forced smile pictures until the last one, which was of Chucky Man doing double upside-down swear fingers against his pants. At first glance, it looked like he was holding his hands kind of clinched funny. His hands looked balled up, except the middle finger of both hands were extended straight and pointing toward his shoes. There was no mistake. He was giving everyone the Christmas bird. This became known in our family as doing the Chucky Man. My brothers had a great time doing it every time I tried to take a picture of them after that. Do the Chucky Man, they'd say to each other as if I couldn't hear them. I feel a little bad telling this story because I'm sure he grew up to be a very nice man. Which reminds me of an adult man who sort of flipped off some kids accidentally. A couple of years ago, my husband was doing work on a children's program that featured a famous herpetologist. I can't say his name right now because it's private, and you'll know who he is immediately because people recognize famous herpetologists like that. And also, my husband said, I can't say his name. Anyway, this guy's been bit and injured a lot because he works with animals, and his middle finger, his swear finger, if you will, is permanently locked straight. That means he is pretty much doing the finger all the time. So what, I thought when I heard about it, who's going to notice? Well, it turns out almost everyone, because he kept using that finger to point to snakes while they were filming, and the few frames I saw were pretty funny, because it is inappropriate to get flipped off by a television naturalist holding a snake while talking to children in earnest about their wonderful world. I don't mean to laugh at his malady, but since I've already used bike gangs and cancer and Chucky Man to amuse myself, I think I'm just going to keep going. I think it would be totally awesome to be so into something you forget you are making an obscene gesture. It makes me feel right at home. Stinky on you. Thanks so much for doing that, Jody. And once again, folks, if you want to read some really funny essays about raising kids, you can still find them online. Just Google the Jesus Gerbil. It's a WordPress blog we had set up some years ago. But reading through those essays, trying to pick one for this show, they're just all great. So some insights on podcast production as I continue to produce this and two other podcasts in my life, soon to be three other podcasts in my life. 
I'd say the biggest question I had going into season two is, it, would that one-year layoff between the end of season one and the start of season two cost me a big chunk of my audience? And it certainly did at first, but after about three or four episodes, it seemed like the numbers had recovered. In season two, I didn't do any promoted posts or ads or anything like that, which I had done in season one to help get things rolling. So I assume the podcast is continuing to grow by word of mouth, by all of you who are telling your friends about it or sending them a link, and I, I really appreciate it. I think that's the best way for a podcast to grow its audience. I tried something different in the schedule for Season 2. Season 1, I think I did 12 episodes across about 14 weeks. In Season 2, I thought I'd do every other week, and we did that up through about Episode 8 of Season 2, but then things started to drag out a little bit. It started to be three or four weeks between episodes. I do think sticking closer to a regular publishing schedule is probably better. Uh, the numbers just seem to take a little bit longer to get back up there on these episodes when there's been three or four or even five weeks between them. I had thought when I chose that every other week schedule that I might fill in some of those off weeks with mini episodes, just little things I'd written that didn't quite rise to the level of a full episode or a full story. And I did produce and record some of them, and then I just decided they... They were not worth publishing. Maybe someday I'll figure out how to turn them into episodes, but they just weren't they weren't providing a full storytelling experience. I did, however, in this season, produce two what I would call private episodes or unpublished episodes. So they were published on my website on PeteBrownSays.com, and my newsletter subscribers were all given direct links to them, but they were not in the RSS feed, so they wouldn't have showed up in Apple Podcasts on your phone or whatever podcast app you might be using. They were both behind-the-scenes type episodes. You can still go to PeteBrownSays.com and click on Episodes and find them listed there. But looking at the numbers, not many of you did that. I also ended up dumping the idea of listener submissions. And if you remember in Season 1, I'd often have a segment where we'd play three or four listener stories that were submitted to me over the internet. I tried that, tried to get that going again at the beginning of this season. And nothing came in. And I tried and tried and tried. And after about four episodes, I thought, it's just not going to happen this season. Though it was one of my favorite things to put together in season one. So maybe for a future season, it'll come back. Uh, I released my first episode with an accompanying short film, and that was Timbuktu. And uh, both that episode and the film performed pretty well. That was important to me because this new project that I referenced at the beginning of this episode is simultaneously a podcast and documentary film project, and so I will be releasing a lot of short films along with those episodes, as well as, hopefully, by the end of the year, a feature-length documentary. I also experimented in Season 2 with some longer episodes. So mostly in Season 1, I tried to keep the, the show to about a half an hour, uh, but in Season 2, I had a couple that went 45 minutes, one went 50 minutes, one went over an hour, and those all performed just as well as the shorter shows. I think as long as the narrative's engaging, people are willing to invest that time. In fact, the top performing episode for season two was the second longest, and it's called How to Like It. It's about what I was going through as I was preparing to take my son to college for the first time. And not only has that one really far surpassed all the other episodes in season two, it's generated the most mail. A lot of people reached out to me with email or sent me direct messages on Twitter, just sharing similar experiences that they had. And I love getting those notes because it tells me that the story I put together has resonated with someone. And also, I just wanted to talk about my appearance on the Risk podcast, which happened just a few months into this season. Risk is one of the best well-known storytelling podcasts. They get hundreds of thousands of downloads each month. 
I had to audition and was chosen to tell a story at their live show in Cincinnati, and then that story was played on episode 1021 of the Risk podcast, and came out on March 4th, and I was curious what sort of bump I might see from appearing on there, and interestingly enough, I did not see an immediate bump in podcast downloads following my appearance on that podcast. I did get a bump in Twitter followers. In fact, I'd been kind of stalled out around 1,500 Twitter followers for probably a year and a half or two years. And uh, after I was on the Risk Podcast, I I shot up to about 2,200. Now I'm at 2,500, hopefully still growing. I do hope that some of you listening now are folks who found me through the Risk Podcast and then listened to Pete Brown Says and really enjoyed it. And hopefully you're telling your friends about it as well. And that's about it. If you want to stay on top of what's happening with Pete Brown Says or with my upcoming new project, you can sign up for the newsletter at PeteBrownSays.com. Just click on newsletter and drop your email address in there. You can also buy me a coffee, which is a way to throw in a couple bucks that helps cover the hosting costs for the show. appreciate all of you who bought me coffee in season two. That was super exciting. Every time I got an email saying someone bought me a coffee, it was like getting a little high five in the middle of my day. So I really appreciate those of you who bought me a coffee and especially the one person who bought me five coffees. You know who you are. Thank you very much. Go Demons. So keep an eye on the Pete Brown Says feed around mid-October, where I'm going to release officially release the trailer for my new podcast documentary film project. If you enjoyed this season at all, please leave me a review on iTunes and let a few people know about the show. The one thing I love about these essays is none of them are time-dependent. So somebody might listen to one and like it, and they can go back and start at the beginning. Doesn't matter what order they're in. None of them are really dependent on current events. Okay, thanks again for everybody who listens to the show. I really appreciate you. I hope you're enjoying what you're hearing. And as always, everybody, good times. Pete Brown Says is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown, and is the property of Blue Monkey Communications. The show is written to the best of my memory. At times, names, timelines, and events have been changed, though I will try to let you know when that is happening. You can learn more about the basketball-themed board game Hoopsters at hoopsters.store. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Pete Brown Says, and submit a story of your own or sign up for the newsletter at PeteBrownSays.com. There's also a link there to buy me a cup of coffee if you want to help cover production expenses. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it. I'm growing an audience, one listener at a time, and your help is crucial to that effort. Music and sound effects in this episode have been sourced and licensed from the websites audionautics.com, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. The opening music is by Brian Hake, and some interstitials are by Kevin Davison. Their now-defunct band Delicious performs the show's theme song, I'm Not Myself. We'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks. Until then, and as always... Good times, everyone. Good times.